A cultural testimony of Christianity is very much like a cultural testimony of anybody who's grown up in whatever the majority religion is in their country. You know, you grew up tender-hearted as a little child. You get into high school and you begin to want to run with your friends and be popular and see what the adventures are in the world. And a little later on in life, you decide that some of those things that you believe when you were a little child that your parents taught you were valuable. And you want to get back to it and you want to kind of root your life in those things because that's the basis from which you want to live your life and kind of fit into the society in which you live. And so you come back to that faith. People share those kinds of testimonies in Buddhist countries and Hindu countries and Muslim countries. They share those kinds of testimonies in Christian or Christianized nations. Yet that's not the kind of testimony we want to share. That's a testimony you can share with anybody and they can identify with it and say, yeah, I have a testimony very similar to that. You want to share a testimony that's rather radical. The testimony that we just read about in Acts 26 that Paul is sharing is a radical testimony of a radical confrontation with the person of Jesus Christ in which he recognizes his sin. He recognizes the pattern of his behavior is antithetical, and it's actually against the very things that God is trying to do to bring people to himself. And he's brought into a deep and profound moment of repentance, and he responds enthusiastically with a desire to serve God in every way. And when you're done sharing those testimonies, you get the kind of responses that Paul got from Festus and Agrippa. Festus was like the procurate, a Roman procurate of that area, and Agrippa was the king ruling over that region that Paul was living in, a Samaritan. And Festus says, Paul, you've lost your mind. You're insane. You're crazy. Much learning has made you mad. And listen, if your testimony doesn't to some extent make people think you're nuts, right? You probably haven't got to the point where it's radical It's radical expression of the transforming power of the gospel in a person's life. And Agrippa, though, said, Paul, are you trying to convince me in such a quick way to become a Christian like you? In other words, Agrippa is saying, there's something to this. It may sound crazy, but this has a ring of truth about it. Well, the testimony of Paul was one that made people actually go mad around him at what they thought was his madness. And at the same time, it was profound. This week, what I want to do is begin a series in the book of Romans. My favorite author is an author by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm not going to keep you in Romans as long as he kept people in Romans. When Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in Romans, he did it for a number of years, and he actually he didn't finish the series. He did it on Sunday night. He did it on Sunday nights because he could preach longer on those nights. So I'm not going to take you that long, but he didn't do it until the end of his ministry because he felt like he didn't have a full handle on the book. And so I think that's probably true of myself. I've been putting off teaching on this book because it's so profound and it's so deep and I felt like there was more that I needed to know and understand. I'm not saying now that I've arrived. You know, I've arrived now and I'm going to preach you on the book of Romans. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's a challenging book, but we're going to study it and learn it together. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 and we'll read to you verses 1 through 7. I'll just give you a little bit of background here. Paul has never traveled to Rome. He's never gone there before, and yet now he's towards the end of his ministry, and he wants to go to the church that's in Rome. And we don't know exactly how the church in Rome got started, but we're actually told that on the day of Pentecost that there were Jews and individuals from Rome that were in Jerusalem at that time that heard the message of the gospel being proclaimed by the early church. And we might assume that of those 3,000 that believed on that day, some of them were from Rome, and they took back 
this new life that they'd experienced by believing in Jesus Christ to Rome. But also Rome was the center of the world, and so all the work that the apostles were doing in impacting people ultimately would have found individuals that were going back to that city, and they brought the gospel back to that city. And we do know of individuals who were in Rome prior to Paul or prior to Peter, yet to some extent the church traditionally has has basically said that Peter and Paul both were founders of the church in Rome. It's interesting, the church was already there, it was already meeting, it was already gathering, but there's some credit that they are the apostles that brought and bore the greatest influence on the church in that place. Paul now is coming towards the end of his ministry and he wants to go and he wants to enjoy fellowship with this growing church in the capital city of the Roman Empire and he's writing them to introduce himself. It's also helpful In all the other letters that we have of Paul, Paul has been there. He's been teaching. He's been, in a sense, unloading the systematic expression of his instruction to the people. And then he writes back to them to address some particular problem or issue that's going on. And so his writings are focused like a laser on those issues. But when he's going to the Church of Rome, they've not received, in a sense, this corpus of the broad instruction or the general instruction that he's delivered in every place. And so we have to kind of understand and believe that what Paul here is doing is he's, in a sense, he's laying down before them the foundational elements of his teaching before he goes and he visits with them. And that's what makes Rome such an important book as well. Here we're just going to consider this morning Paul introducing himself to the church in Rome. And we recognize that the things that he's going to say about himself reverberate out of that testimony that you can read in Acts chapter 26, that radical testimony of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ and being wonderfully transformed by him. Let me read to you the first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. We will probably be at least one more week in this section of Scripture. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as I've said, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and one of the things he's wanting to do is kind of establish his apostolic credentials. Paul is an apostle. He's writing, in a sense, to include himself among at least what are the 12, or now he's the 13th apostle. And an apostle is an individual who has been an eyewitness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. An apostle is also an individual who first person received direct, systematic instruction and teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. And having been an eyewitness of his resurrection, they're persons who have been directly commissioned to go and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all of the earth. In other words, they have been given an assignment to be the founders, you might say, of the early church and the immediate voices of the word of Jesus Christ to the world. They're the ones who established now what we have known as our canon. It's this instruction that we have in the New Testament that embodies, you might say, the apostolic teaching of the early church. And 
Paul is including himself in that. I, I want to speak about this a little bit more the next time we speak on this topic. You'll see that the writers of the New Testament very much want us to know that they speak and they teach with this apostolic authority of those who have seen the Lord Jesus, been instructed by the Lord Jesus, have been given their message not through, you know, the advancing reporting from one man to another man to another man, but they receive it directly from Jesus Christ himself, and they report that teaching directly to us. And Paul is occupying this position as well. The period of the apostles lasts to about 60 or 70 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The last apostle was the apostle John. He's the only one of the apostles that doesn't die a martyr's death. So when John passes away some 60 or 70 years after the resurrection of Jesus, he brings to a close this period of the apostles. And a couple things you need to know, just one, the apostles and the era of the apostles was a time of spectacular success. They may have died as martyrs, but they made a tremendous impact. There was no apostle that was, in a sense, more successful than the apostle Paul. By the time that Paul is beheaded in Rome, there is a church in every major city in the Western Roman Empire. By the time the apostolic period ends, it's estimated there are about 500,000 or half a million followers of Jesus Christ. It's a time of tremendous and wonderful success. And these apostles conclude their ministry. When they conclude it, they leave behind an organized fellowship across the Roman Empire and a host of equipped and activated believers who are on mission to take the gospel over the next hill and into the next valley and who are willing to follow their founders in martyrdom in order to carry forward their work to the ends of earth as they know it. When Paul first came to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us that he departed into the Arabian desert for three years. If we gather from the statement of his testimony in Acts 26, there on that place, the Lord Jesus continues to appear to him and instruct him so that when Paul finishes that time in Arabia and eventually he goes to a place where he meets with the other apostles, he doesn't go there to have them lay out before them the apostolic doctrine. He already has it. He only spends, he, he's very clear in Galatians to tell us he's only with them for 13 days. He just comes to meet with them and gather with them and they accord or they recognize that he too has been with the Lord Jesus. Um, so he begins his ministry going off to this place of silence and solitude where in quiet fellowship with the Almighty, the Savior can hone and develop in him the message that he's to bring to the Gentile nations. At the end of his life, Paul is not looking for the solitary place. He's wanting to go to the teeming streets of Rome to preach the gospel that he's preached throughout the Western Roman Empire. These writings of Paul that he writes have tremendous impact on the world. Actually, we're going to look at this letter of Romans, and if you study church history, you'll find out that church history is replete or full of individuals who rise up to give leadership to the church that trace their conversion to the moment in which they encountered the teachings of Paul in the book of Romans. Augustine will say that it was reading the book of Romans that ultimately turned him to Christ. Luther will confess that it was reading the book of Romans in which he discovered the wonderful truth of justification by faith. 
The same is true of John Wesley and other individuals throughout church history. The interesting thing is Paul has not only in this way impacted church history, but Paul has impacted all of the world, all of the Western world. Just the other day I was listening to a, an account of a man who is an atheistic or an atheist historian who had had to acknowledge that ultimately all of the Western world was shaped or formed by Christianity. He was trying to find out what was the root of democracy and Western civilization. And as an atheist, he wanted to find it in the teachings of the Greeks and in the positions and arguments of the Romans, but he couldn't find it there. Ultimately, he had to confess that it was in the writings and teachings of Paul. In fact, he made the comment that what Paul wrote was kind of like a depth charge that exploded deep, deep beneath the surface of the Greek and Roman world order and began a series of revolutionary ways of thinking that is still impacting our world today. Now, the only reason I'm telling you that is this man had tremendous impact, tremendous impact on the church in the time in which he lived. He left the world a church that made even greater and more far-reaching impact. His teaching is continually informing the way that our society and our culture even take shape, even in this day and age. And so we ought to pay attention to his life. Here in this text, Paul is introducing himself, and he's in essence telling us what is foundational to his life and his influence, that influence that has continued to reverberate today. And an application for ourselves is this, that we should find something in this that might be foundational for our lives as well, particularly if we want our lives to reverberate with influence in the world in which we live. So we're going to look at verse 1, just a little bit briefly at verse 5. But verse 1 is where Paul introduces himself. He lays before us an understanding of his own life that informs the way that he writes and the way that he lives and the impact that he had. And here's the first thing Paul says. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The word servant there is doulos, and it basically is better read a slave of Christ Jesus. Here he's writing to the church in Rome, and the first thing he says, I want you to know is I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And you have to recall that the primary audience Paul is writing are the Gentiles in Rome, and the Romans are not unfamiliar with slaves. The whole economic system of the Roman Empire is basically generated, and it goes forward and it's sustained by the enslavement of those individuals that they've conquered. Every Roman town had a slave market, and the more prosperous you were, the more slaves you possessed. When Paul makes this statement, he's making a statement, he's pronouncing a title upon himself that to some extent sparked a sense of abhorrence in those he's writing to. It's not anything that anyone aspired to be in life, was to be a slave, particularly within the Roman world. They understood this. Paul is declaring to himself, they know his reputation. They know that he has a reputation of a leader within the church by then. They know what he's done and how he's impacted other people's lives. It's probably likely by this time that even some of Paul's family members are in Rome and people that Paul has ministered to and touched have gone back to Rome. And so there are a few people that know Paul and have reported about Paul's position and, his, and the power of his message and teaching. But Paul wants them to know about everything else as he comes among them, that he, he comes among them as one who counts himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing here is, first of all, he's humbling himself. He's laying himself out before the individuals. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul, in this humble state of mind, writes to the people in Ephesus and tells them that he is the least of all the saints. He's the least of all the followers of Jesus Christ. 
He never forgot. He never forgot the pit from which God dug him out and Jesus Christ reached to him. At the foundation of this man's greatness was a humility that remembered the point from which he was redeemed. Paul considers himself as one who is purchased out of bondage and slavery to sin and to Satan and to this world by Christ with Christ's own blood to be Christ's own slave. And that's how he approaches individuals. That's how he comes to them. Interestingly enough, both Paul and Peter oftentimes identify Christians themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, Paul is saying, I'm just, I'm like you. I'm just somebody who's been redeemed out of the bondage of sin to be bound to Christ. The other thing that Paul is doing is he's making it very clear from the onset that he has no goal. He's wanting to come to these people, but that he has no goal to possess others in his ministry. He's not working from a point of selfish ambition. He's not a man who holds possession of anyone or anything. Slaves didn't do that. He's a man who is wholly possessed of Christ Jesus. His time, his intellect, his body, everything that he has, everything that he is, everything that he acquires belongs to the Lord Jesus. Listen, if Paul identifies himself in this kind of lowly name as a slave, and he's not serious about it, he's making some kind of abhorrent joke. It's some kind of abhorrent mockery. If Paul also at the same time is really not a slave of the Lord Jesus, but he's coming into the setting and he's using this He's foisting this idea that he's being a servant in order to gain things for himself, that he's not simply an abhorrent joke. He's actually doing something that's quite evil. He's coming among them, and he's trying to present himself as this one who's coming as this lowly slave, but then he's going to exercise power and authority over people in order to gain them and rule them and rule over their lives. But if he is truly a slave bound to the Lord Jesus Christ, then he's expressing something that is beautiful He's expressing a blessed position that makes him free from self and selfish ambition and sin and worldly occupations and worldly designs. And he's at the same time setting himself fully under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's coming among them simply to express that rule of Jesus over his life. He's not coming to foist himself or to demand or to require anything of them for his own sake. At the same time, by saying this, Paul is also establishing a unique point of authority for those that he's speaking to. He isn't writing of his own accord, he's telling them. I'm not coming to you as an extension of my own pursuit of power. I'm coming as one who is extending to you my ownership to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm coming to you bound to act according to the will of my master. Paul is establishing that he is not possessing, in a sense, his own personal prerogatives in writing to them or wanting to come and visit with them. He does everything that he does under the command of his owner. He's owned. His actions are owned and directed. He's moving forward in submission to his master. He's just a humble slave answering the directives of the king who owns him. And interestingly enough, that's potent. That's powerful. He's not representing himself. He's representing somebody else. And that sways a certain level of authority that we'll see in just a moment. I think another thing we see here that Paul is doing is he's expressing his love for the Lord Jesus. A Jew would know, and there were Jews in the church in Rome at that time, they would know that there was a particular ritual for slaves in the Old Testament that they could undergo. 
The slave in the Jewish world, in the Old Testament, oftentimes they'd indentured themselves for various reasons, and they had a right to earn their freedom after six years of labor. But having labored for a, a master for six years, even though they earned their freedom, they, they may come to love their master to such an extent that they didn't want to be free from him. And so they would engage in a ritual in which their ear was put up against a doorpost and their ear was bored through with an awl and they received the mark of enslavement, loving enslavement to their master and expression they didn't want to be free from him. They delighted in the governance and rule of that master. Paul is in a sense saying, I'm a love slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not saying this in some servile way. This statement, a slave of Christ Jesus, is a declaration of, for Paul of great comfort and great encouragement and great love. In Galatians, Paul says that he bears in his body the brand marks of Christ. Now, how did he get them? Well, he was persecuted, he was beaten, and he was flogged, and he endured all kinds of bodily harm because of his service of Jesus Christ. But as the lashes fell upon them, and as the scars built up upon his back, it was as if he said, no, these are the marks that I've received voluntarily to show people that I love Jesus and I want to serve him and I'm bound to him and I'm marked with a loving, lasting servanthood to the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying he's owned in humility. He's owned beyond possessing others. He's owned with an authority that comes from his master and he's owned by his own deep love for the Lord who's rescued him and delivered him. So here's an application for ourselves. If you've been born again, if you count yourself one who's been redeemed by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for your sins, then you've been bought with a price. That's actually what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We're to live in that way, to claim salvation and membership as the redeemed people of God, and then to live a life full of self-seeking, to possess things for yourself, for your own sake, is to do something that puts you in a position, if you profess to be redeemed of Jesus Christ, of either being hypocritical or possibly even evil. <laughs> I'm saved, I'm a Christian, and then you go and you use that declaration in order to live for your own sake and your own honor and your own praise and for manipulating your way and foisting your influence over people to get things from them. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to this instruction. It fits here. He says, live as people who are free. That means you've been redeemed from your bondage and slavery to sin. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, doulos, servants, slaves of God. He sets you free, but in that wonderful grace in which you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, our life turns back into a, a loving bondage to the one who's redeemed us. And we don't live in this life using our freedom in order to manipulate and get our own way, but now we live and surrender to him to do his will, which is to bless and to bring his good news to others. Here's another thing that Paul says next. We'll look at this. Paul says, called to be an apostle, a slave of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. And here, Paul recognizes that he is called to be 
A sent one. That's the, what the word apostle means. He's not only a slave, but he's a sent one. He's one who's been sent out by God. And consistent with this idea of being an apostle or a sent one is our idea of a pioneering missionary who goes to some far reaches of the earth to establish Christ's message in Christ's church in some untouched part of the world. And Paul, in this case, is declaring this to be true of himself. He's been led by God and called by God to be sent out in this way. Of course, as we've mentioned already, and this is something we'll look at a little bit more fully, Paul is identifying himself here in the ranks of the 12 apostles. The authority that was placed upon them as the founders of the church also rests upon him. And Paul is saying that God clearly has worked and moved to generate this calling and this directing and this positioning of my life by his own sovereign hand. It's not something that he chose to do. It was imposed upon him by God's own calling. It's not merely a vocation that interested him. You know what I think I'll be? I'll be an apostle. It doesn't work that way. God had to call him. God had to direct him. As a result of being under that calling of God, Paul has an obligation to express his leadership even to the church in Rome. And that's part of what he's doing here. He's establishing the fact that he has an obligation and a duty to provide leadership and instruction for them. He's to lead them. He's to give them direction. He's to actually go and inspect the life and health of that church. He's to instruct them and teach them. And he's not being presumptuous here of ministry. He's being obedient to his calling. I would just say here that there's nothing wrong with exercising the authority that God places upon you as his representative. Paul is not hoping to arrive at Rome in order to take a poll to find out what the attitudes are the church residing there so he could find out what kind of input they would receive from him. He's not claiming he's so open. He just wants to find out where the wind is blowing their lives so they can breathe into the sail of his life so he can tell them the things that they'd like to hear. That's not what he's doing. He's coming to them and he's claiming the right and the power and the authority to speak for them the will and purposes of God upon their life because he sees God's sovereign hand bringing to that point and placing upon him that leadership and This is not contradictory to humility. You can be humble. You can be humble and at the same time, you're not weak and you're not vacillating in your role. You know what you are because of what God has done in your life and how it is that God has brought you to that point. This is relevant for ourselves. Paul knows that God has sovereignly worked to bring this call upon his life. I'll give you a couple reference points here. In Galatians chapter 1, you can look at it later, Paul gives a testimony of how God has sovereignly called him out to ministry and service. And in that passage, in verse 15 of Galatians 1, Paul says that God set him apart for the ministry or the role of being an apostle to the Gentiles from before his birth. In other words, God was sovereignly working in all the situations and circumstances of his life before he was even born to bring him to the place in which God would impose upon him this profound calling. God was sovereignly working out all the details. And then Paul will, we read about it in Acts 26, Paul as a testament will say that at the point in which he was converted, when he turned his life to Christ, Christ again called him. Now he gets the call. The work is not only from God the Father, appointing him and directing him from before he is born, but now Jesus Christ is appointing him at the point of his conversion. Let me read to you verses 16 through 18 of Acts 26 and that testimony. Paul has seen this overwhelming light He's on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians who are there or to put them in chains. And as he's going, he's blinded by a light. He falls upon his knees and the Lord Jesus cries out to him and says to him, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting thou me? And then he says, it's hard to kick against the goads. The word goads, you know, if you were leading oxen to plow a field, you'd put goads or pointy sticks on either side of them so they wouldn't get out of the rut. They would follow along in the pathway that you wanted to walk in while you were plowing the field. What Jesus is saying is, I've been putting all kinds of things in your life, directing you into God's calling upon your life, and you're resisting it. And you're not responding to it, and it's painful, isn't it? And you have to understand that part of Paul's aggressive persecution of the church is a way for him to stave off the convicting hand of the Spirit of God upon his life, turning him to Jesus Christ. He had been a member of the synagogue in which Stephen had come and declared the gospel of Jesus Christ and argued with the men of that synagogue. And it says they were defeated by Stephen's arguments. And so the next thing they did was they plotted to kill him. Stephen was arguing how that Jesus was the Messiah from Scripture, and they couldn't defeat his arguments, so they decided to silence him, and were told that Paul was the one who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr in the church. What's Paul doing? He's kicking against the goads. He's resisting the sovereign way in which God was trying to bring to him, to bring him out of conviction, and bring him to himself. But what we kind of learned from the story is the bigger you are, the harder you fall. On the way to Damascus, Paul falls under the light of the presence of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says to him in that moment. He says, rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness, there it is, to the things in which you have seen me, and to those things I will appear to you, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are being sanctified or set apart by faith in me. So at Paul's conversion, the Lord Jesus is directing and calling him into this apostleship. And then in Acts 13, we read that Paul is brought back. He's ministering likely in the area of Tarsus, where he is originally from, and he's had some influence there. And an early church leader by the name of Barnabas invites Saul to come back and work with him in the area of Antioch, which is a part of Syria now. So Paul comes and works with them in that region, and as he's working within that region, the church is gathered together to worship on one occasion, and as they're worshiping and they're fasting, seeking God's will and God's purpose for their lives and how they can impact the world, the Holy Spirit in some wonderful way communicates a direction to the body of Christ in that place. We're actually told in Acts chapter 13 that there were a number of individuals that God had laid his spirit upon to prophesy. At that moment, they hear from the Holy Spirit saying to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. Well, this is kind of interesting, you see. God the Father appointing Saul even before he's born. Jesus Christ meeting Saul on the road and appointing him at his conversion. Sometime after that, the Holy Spirit speaking through the church in order to appoint him and send him out into the mission field when the mission field was going out in this Gentile world and Gentile community. And all of this, God was sovereignly working. God was orchestrating all the circumstances of Paul's life to call him into apostleship, calling him to be set out as a missionary for the sake of the gospel. What we can say here is that Paul understood that God had orchestrated and sovereignly led him to the place of ministry. This is important. If you're going to be impactful in your life, first, know you're not trying to gain things for yourself. Don't go out with selfish ambition. Be certain that what you do in your life is 
you live your life and surrender to the one who's redeemed you and purchased you with his own precious blood and, and love, you're just bound to him as a slave. Not seeking your own will, but his will. That gives you a unique kind of authority that rises far above yourself. The next one is recognize the sovereign hand of God in the circumstances of your life, leading you to points of impact so that wherever you are in your life, whatever the difficulty is, whatever the challenge is, you can know God has brought me here and God has a calling upon my life and God can use me and God can equip me and live under that sense of God's sovereign call. So pay attention and recognize God's hand upon your life and the places where you find yourself. We're not flotsam floating along a mindless sea. We're individuals who are sent forth in the world, a world planned for us by God, God overriding and God seeing and God working. And even when contradictory things happen, God has promised that for those who love the Lord Jesus, he works all things together for good. My father used to say that the sovereignty of God is expressed in his pledge to make Satan eat dirt. I'm going to take every situation and work it for my glory and my honor. You live under that sovereign hand of God and You'll recognize a call upon your life and God can use you. I was speaking to a young lady just this last week and explaining this to her. They're in some difficulty. They're facing some challenges. They're a little discouraged. And I said, you know what? If you just turn this around and recognize that, that God has you there and God has a purpose and God has a design and you'd live in submission and surrender to him, you'd, instead of whining, you'd get a sense of direction. And he's calling you in these places to serve him. And you think about the people that are hearing this message from Paul. Many of these individuals maybe found themselves in Rome because they traveled from the villages where they're at and they'd come to the gospel because someone had traveled into their village where they worshiped all kinds of various gods, but they were becoming less and less impressed with those gods. There was a diminishing of a value and a cynicism that was growing up in the Roman world for all the various gods that they worshiped. They hadn't delivered. They didn't deliver for the Greeks. They weren't delivering for the Romans. Now, some stranger comes into the community and he's declaring this message of a Savior who's come, a Messiah who's come, who's died and risen from the grave. And he, he shows up at their little gate or in front of their home. And how odd and how strange in this world in which they lived, in which life didn't turn really fast. It just kind of went along as it went along from one generation to the next. And, and now this figure shows up to their doorstep proclaiming this unique and odd message. But there, something comes over their mind. This, this rang with truth. This answered deep longings within our life, and this had to be planned for them. This had to be God's will for them. Just last night, going to bed, I'm seeing a picture of these women in India whose heads are covered, and they're living in, I've been there, they are dark communities, teeming with individuals where they're alone in the midst of the multitude. And here is someone who's come into their home and begun to speak to them, and they're hearing this wonderful story of the God of all creation who loves them and has designed them for himself and who knows that they're sinful and that their sin brings upon them his punishment, but that God loved them so much that God became flesh and came among them and suffered for their sins and died for them in order that if they would believe in him and trust in him, they might be completely forgiven and they might give a life that's transcendent above the mundane experiences of life from day to day. And here's this image of these women and men that are bowing their heads and they're praying and asking the Lord Jesus to come in their life, part of what they have to be thinking is how odd and how strange in this place that at this moment, this message and these individuals might show up at my doorstep. I've had it happen to me on a number of different occasions. When we first started doing our ministries overseas and we went to 
Mexico City. I took Judy with me. Judy didn't like to fly. She asked that I sit next to her on the way down. They're flying. And so she grabbed my hand when the plane was taking off, and she about broke my hand. She was just so nervous. And then she was fearful when we got there. But I said, Judy, God has people for you to meet. God is preparing someone for you. We sent her into this community, and it was a gated community. You can't even get into the homes unless people open their gates. She was just walking through the neighborhood with a member of the church. A woman comes out and opens up her gate and is about ready to drive the, her car out of the gate. And Judy began speaking with her. And Judy explains to her that she's from Canada. We lived in, I lived in Canada at that time. And that she'd come down to share how, how Jesus had wonderfully transformed her life and would like to share a story with her. They just had this happen, moment happening. Well, the woman let her come in the house. They ended up engaging in a conversation that lasted for two hours. One of the questions that we teach people to ask is, do you believe you're a sinner? How do you know that you're a sinner? When she asked that question of this woman, this woman began to cry. She said, well, I have to tell you something. I'm married and I have children, but I had just this morning decided I was going to start an affair with a man. And I was getting in my car and I was driving out to go meet with that man just now. And you came. She's weeping. Well, that's a sovereign appointment of God. That's God meeting her at the moment in which she knows. She's being swept into the whirlpool of her own desires and her own needs, and it's going to suck her down. These people in Rome had their own stories like that. They recognize that they have been called of God out of the darkness of that world, and Paul is identifying with them and saying, hey, we're called. We're sovereignly called by God, and this gives purpose and intent for our lives. You recognize that in your own life. Here's the next thing Paul says. Set apart for the gospel of God, Paul is separated to one purpose, proclaiming the gospel of God. The idea of set apart here is that he has been drawn out from the masses and from the aims and the motions of the masses, and he's been given a singularity of purpose, a focus or an aim. Paul knows that God has distinguished him from the life that he once lived in order to live a life that is going in a completely different direction for a completely different purpose. By the way, the word there that says set apart is the word from which you get Pharisee. The Pharisees were set apart ones. They've been given to hone their holiness and follow all the meticulous points of the law and teach other people how to follow the law. And Paul was a Pharisee dedicated to all those things. And then he'd been wonderfully reached and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he's set apart for a gospel of grace. We're not saved by works of the law. We're saved by the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and he's king and he wants to establish that kingdom in your heart. By the way, this word gospel was a word that was common among the Romans. An evangelist or a person who proclaimed the gospel was an individual who might serve the emperor. And when, say, a new emperor ascended to the place of rule within the government, that person would go out throughout the community and proclaim the rise and the ascension of this new emperor over the land. And he was considered a gospel, and his message was the good news. Paul saying, look, I've been set apart now not to proclaim the law, but proclaim this gospel that there's a, a king that's arrived. He can set up his kingdom in your heart and he'll rule and he's coming back one day, but he's already provided a way for you to be saved and rescued and brought into his kingdom. He'll transform you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This recognition that he has been set apart for this sole purpose of putting the gospel to people gives Paul this singularness of mind. He begins to shape all of his engagements with people, all of his relationships with people in a way on 
how he can be an agent to continually bring good news into people's lives of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, Paul talks about this single-purpose mind. Later on, Paul will say, by the way, that in, in the pursuit of this goal that he's going to talk about here, that he beats his body black and blue. He brings it under discipline in order that he might carry on this continual work, this discipline-focused work of bringing the gospel to others. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, he says this, For though I am free from all, that's speaking of his redemption, I have made myself servant to all, we've talked about that already, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. Listen to this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. All these engagements I have, all these relationships I have, all the ways in which I think I can influence and direct people, it's all channeling down for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing, that they might come under the power of the wonderful liberty that comes to us through the deeming work of Jesus Christ, that more and more might experience with me. Paul's basically saying, I recognize that God has set me apart and consecrated me to a a profound, singular purpose that I have adopted in my life. Think about that. A singleness of mind. A slave to Jesus Christ. Recognizing God's sovereign hand to send him out. Singled out, you might say, for a purpose. And keeping his eye fixed upon that. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? Do you recognize God having singled you out in this way? Can you say you're, you're a slave to the Savior because he's won you by the gospel? Can you see the sovereign hand of God leaving you to a point in time and a place in which he spoke to you, made known to you, his saving truth, and you turn to him? All of that constitutes something. Can you say your life is consecrated? It's separated out for something singular and purposeful to make that good news known. Here's what Peter says of the church, of the believer, of the Christian in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, that means a separated people or nation, a people for God's own possession, that means like slaves. Here's your purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Paul is talking about is about the trajectory of his life. Paul is saying that his life was aimed at making Christ and his gospel known to others. That was the primary trajectory of his life. It may be wise then for ourselves to trace the trajectory of how we're living and ask if it demonstrates this same interest in putting Christ forward in our world. Are we staying focused? Here's Paul, a slave to Jesus. Nothing more in essence than an own man who is loved supremely and loved supremely because he's bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul, sovereignly sent out, called to a place of mission, sent out under the directing hand of God. Here's Paul, separated, singular, in purpose to make the gospel of God and the rule of Jesus Christ known in the world. What you should do is say, God, help shape those kinds of things in my life. I want to have uh, an approximation to the life of Paul. I want to I have impact for you. 
But e even if you don't, if you say, okay, at this point in time, I don't see these things. At least see it in Paul. At least see it in Paul. It's why what he has to say to us and what he teaches us is so important. It's why it will have an impact on your life and why it's had a tremendous impact on our world. I'm going to skip my last point. That's good enough right there, right? <laughs> we'll pick that up next week. I will just say this. Paul then will say that he's been supplied by the grace of God for all those things. He didn't do any of this in his own power. It was all something God gave to him. God give this to us as well. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, I'm looking forward to this. I thank you for how you unfold the perfect synchronization of your truth throughout your word to reveal to us your designs and your purposes for our lives and the way in which we're blessed and the way in which we can be a blessing to others. We live in a day and age in which it seems like chaos is reigning all around us and people and lives are being fractured and minds are going in a hundred different directions. God, you're a God of order because you're a God who's spoken and your word is truth and your son Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you, God, for that. You took a violent man like Paul who was wreaking havoc and pouring out rage and to an individual who can pronounce over people the grace and peace of God be upon you. Do that in our lives as well. We ask in Jesus' precious name.